Welcome back. It's episode 137 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and Hughes School of Law, America's only institution of higher education where celebrities pay bribes to get their kids out of it. <laughs> I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and high-end cat groomer, and I am joined as always, by the Green Hornet and Cato of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Now, fellas, August is my favorite month of the year, mainly because it's Digestive Tract Paralysis Awareness Month. But also, (laughs) that's a true fact. That's a true fact. But also because it is a time-honored tradition of this show that I have to do even less in August than I do the rest of the year because this is when we turn it over to our audience for listener Q&A. So thanks to everyone who emailed us and who also left questions in the comments at Ricochet. And gentlemen... We've got a lot of them. So with your indulgence, I'm not going to waste any time. Let's just jump right into this. Okay. So we can't tell you about our lives. That's okay. I mean, do we need to? They know about it Richard, is there anything of such burning importance that you feel the need to jump in front of this train with something that's happening in your life? Well, I never want to jump in front of a train, Uh, but all is well in the land of Epstein. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what you had on deck, huh? How about John? I want a, a real thing. I, well, I, there's an equal time provision here, John. You are you are on the uh, the cusp of evacuation, so you actually do have news. Yes, I've been told by the city fathers and mothers of Berkeley that we have to. Ooh, those are have awful our... gendered terms for the city of Berkeley, John. <laughs> and those in between, you very you cut me off for those in between to have our cars packed, gassed, and ready to go at a moment's notice every day this week. Uh, right now. Uh, the bay is like a bowl filled with smoke. I've been told this is what it's like to be in Beijing these days. You can't see more than a few hundred feet in front of you. And we've been told to keep our cars off the street, not to block them for first responders. It's uh, Armageddon has come to California. But- oh, I do have news now. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, Richard, Richard's uh, news is that he's not- preparing a guest room for me for no, a drop no, over I to mean, Chicago. It, no, it, it I'm coming, out, I'm Richard, not, I'm, I'm not coming over to your pad by. as soon as I, I, I well, forced you, out. You won't be able to get here because there's another mass riot, rally or slash riot planned for Chicago on Saturday, and they're going to pull up the bridges and so forth. And when I take a walk outside of my apartment, uh, what has happened, instead of having sloppy whiteboards be boarding up windows, they now have dark black ones, which seem to be much more dirty and much more permanent. So you're in a fire zone. I'm in a riot zone. And, and what are you in, Mr. Senek? I think Troy's in the middle of a lonely, lonely WeWork office in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. I'm in the middle of a dead zone is the answer to that question. Right. There's, there's no, okay. nobody here. There's so nobody you, have, you, you couldn't think of a better place to get the full atmosphere when one is writing a biography of Grover Cleveland, <laughs> which as, as as you all know, because this happened moments before we went on the air, my sole accompaniment here in this uh, office at the moment is one of only 250 Grover Cleveland bobbleheads produced by the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame. So contra the two of you, my life is looking up. 
<laughs> but we want you to send each of us one of them so you get it down to 248. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start you guys. We got a lot of questions, a lot of good ones, a lot of interesting ones. This is the stuff that I love about the audience Q&A is it's stuff. You, re- that you, know, that Richard, you know that Richard sent most of those in himself <laughs> under pseudonyms. I want to set myself up. <laughs> there, are a couple of, there are a couple of these where that is very plausible. Let, let me start you with this one. It comes from David Guaspari, who asks... A question about stare decisis for the two of you. I'd like to hear a discussion on an argument claiming that stare decisis has the least force on matters of constitutional interpretation. It, it goes like this. A misguided interpretation of a statute is easily corrected. A legislature amends the text to make its meaning clear. But since amending the Constitution is so difficult, the only practical way for correcting a lousy interpretation of the Constitution is for a later court to overrule it. John, I'll let you have the first bite at this one. Right, because when you remember our last session, Richard and I took different views about stare decisis. I don't think it should really apply at all uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, There is this argument that's made that at the very least, you shouldn't have it apply to constitutional interpretations because to reverse one requires essentially a constitutional amendment or decades and decades of changing the membership of the court through the appointments process. I think there's some force to that. Also, it's not just the constitutional amendment process is difficult, but how many constitutional amendments have there actually been that overrule Supreme Court decisions? I think it's four or five, but it's not many. On the other hand, is the questioner asks, it's easy, not easy. I mean, you could say it's difficult to interpret, I'm sorry, to overturn a mistaken interpretation of a statute uh, because you you might have to get over not just the uh, requirement for majority vote, but you might have to get over a filibuster and or a presidential veto. In a funny way, it might be the same in Congress. It might still be two-thirds, but you still don't need three-quarters of the states to interpret. I'm sorry, to change the uh, interpretation of a statute. However, I I have a very different reason for rejecting stare decisis, which is uh, the justices take an oath like everybody else to enforce the Constitution first, above all other forms of law. And that also includes, those other forms of law include other Supreme Court decisions. I don't see why the Supreme Court uh, has any right to give its own past mistaken decisions uh, a level of authority that's equal to the constitutional text itself. Richard, I, I hear you sighing pregnantly. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> look, as I mentioned the last time, uh, the Constitution has two moving parts. One of them is textualism, and one of them is custom and usage. And what happens is there are some customs and usages that you essentially really want to get away from because they turn out to be pathological. So if somebody in 1953 were going to tell me that you had to follow Plessy v. Ferguson and therefore you could do nothing about segregation through the Constitution, um, you know, I would say, oh, wait a second, I want to overrule that decision. Uh, but there are so many parts of the American Constitution today uh, that are rested upon decisions that are textually inaccurate but socially indispensable. Uh, you start with Marbury v. Madison. You then go on to Martin against Hunter's lessee. It's pretty clear if you go back to the original version of the Constitution, judicial review in the sense of having superior power 
over the other two branches of government were not part of the American system, and nor was it uh, part of the American system to have it with respect to federalism types question. The supremacy clause says the Constitution is paramount, but it leaves it to the states, the judges in every state to determine exactly what it means. And, and we've gotten rid of that for 200 odd years, and it seems to work pretty well. So I am certainly basically uh, prepared to say that the uh, stare decisis has some weight in cases like that where I got it as decisive. I think where you have recent decisions that are clearly aberrant, what you want to do is to turn back to the original text and so forth. Uh, it also turns out that in many cases under the Constitution, you don't have a clear direction one way or another. Just as Robert Jackson had a phrase that I quoted to my students this morning in my first constitutional law class of the new semester, where he talks about the great silences of the American Constitution, and what are you supposed to do with them? One of those cases, for example, is which branch of government is in charge of deciding to recognize foreign states or who are trying to apply for something? And we had the case called Zivotofsky, in which they went every which way. There is no textual answer to that particular thing. And so at that point, it seems to me you really are driven to the question of trying to do this through structural inferences, all of which are highly imperfect. And it seems to me that uh, on cases like that, uh, if you think that there's some kind of a uh, good thing or what you want to do, uh, you want to keep it. I don't think you want to constantly change on the grounds that this argument's a little bit better than that argument. And so stereo decisis in really difficult cases uh, gives you a kind of constitutional continuity. Uh, one of the things about Marbury v. Madison and a lot of American constitutional law is it treats things as being yes-no answers. How many witnesses do you have to have in order to convict somebody of treason? You better not say one and you better not say three because the answer is two. Uh, but when you're dealing with things like equal protection and what's compensation under the takings clause, what's the scope of religious liberty, uh, what kinds of things do or do not fall within the executive power, uh, it seems to me under those cases you really do want to use at least some degree of, of, of stare decisive in order to preserve some degree of continuity uh, when the alternative result is dicey. So um, I essentially don't have John's sort of dogmatic answer about this. There are certainly cases where I think he's right. But I think that kind of tension exists in every body of law. I'll just give you one parallel. Um, if you're trying to talk about textualism and property law, it would be the system of deeds. If you're trying to figure out the pattern of usage and so forth, that would be the rules of prescription and adverse possession. Uh, it's not the case that the deed always trumps over the other two things. Uh, that's why the subject is interesting. And I think that exact same tension between the legal rule and the customary practice arises in dealing with constitutional issues. So I think Justice Thomas, for whom uh, I believe it was John clerked, I never clerked for anybody, um, is, is overstates a good case on this particular point. No, Richard never uh, clerked on the Supreme Court because we don't have any, I think, any justices who've ever committed suicide. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, actually, John, I, I have to say, I'm going to give you the hidden advantage of never having clerked on the Supreme Court. Um, what you do is you get a completely different centralist view of the world. Yes, I agree. You're not a Beltway guy. You're not a Supreme Court guy. And so people say, now, what are the things that really influence you about constitutional interpretation? And the first thing I mentioned is, well, it's not riparian rights in this particular case. <laughs> oh, no, no, All not that. All roads lead to, <laughs> to Rome. Rome. <laughs> but Roman, the Roman rules of interpretation are, in fact, the ones that were adopted uh, in terms of the basic constitutional framework. And you know, one very nice illustration of that is a case called Nebraska against Ohio, uh, 
against Iowa, where they're applying the Roman doctrines of riparian rights to figure out who owns that part of land uh, when there's been a violent change in the river. Does it stay with one state or does it go over to the other? I mean, so, uh, you know, it's not as though, and you have to do those kinds of things, and they did it pretty well. So I don't come from a a judicially centered system. And, and it has really changed. It gives you a very different view of what the law is from somebody like John is hopelessly in bed with Supreme Court jurisprudence. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Wow. Uh, can I, I have one more <clears throat> response about, well, not response, but to continue this uh, conventions idea. So I, you know, Richard's right. A lot of the things that we do are not demanded or set out in the constitutional text. They're practices that what he calls conventions, uh, but I don't think those should get stare decisis. And I think actually you would think that they are the one, those are the practices that should be least entitled to some kind of deference by people in the future. Because why have any of these conventions? Uh, if they're not from the constitutional text, then they're just, you're just doing them because of convenience or because they're efficient and effective. And so you'd want to have the ability to change those easily and quickly. Uh, when they're no longer, when they no longer fit the circumstances, when they become inefficient or unwieldy, um, and I, and lastly, I would say the court should be really staying out of the business of imposing these conventions at all. It's just let Congress and the president decide how to make arrangements in areas where the constitution has, or the states when the constitution has nothing to say, and it should just not be. Uh, you know, should not be imposing its views, and then uh, we'll never get into the stare decisis question at all. Let, let's talk about a complete contradiction known as an Article One court. Right? Are they all unconstitutional? I think so. <laughs> yeah, but, but nobody else does. And in fact, every time we create a new court, we make it an Article One court. Yeah, I don't even and understand all, how you could have an Article One court. That's like having well, uh, an Article, Article Three, pre- Article Three presidency. I know it's, a it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, in order to do this, you have to go back to chancery in oh. England and the courts of equity. Um, and equity is a big part of the American Constitution, all cases in law and equity. And what happens is you go to the king and he asks for some form of relief and he turns it down. And then somebody says, this is a tough enough question. We ought to kick it upstairs. And then when you start to kick it upstairs, you say, you know, this is not like the one that I did. Well, people ought to argue about that. And solely what happens is the chancellor ceases to be a purely administrative figure and becomes a judicial figure. Exactly that happened with the customs office. You get huge amounts of cases on the custom of customs in the 19th century, and they start kicking them upstairs. And by the time you get to 1850 and 1820 in all the states and in the central government, you get these guys who were appointed form- formally as officials who are now deciding these things. It turns out 40 years later, somebody actually challenges the practice um, in, in a case called Murray's against the Hoboken lessees or some such title. And what is the Supreme Court supposed to say? Every decision that these guys made is void. Yes, because there's no, they're not allowed to have judicial decisions that are not. I mean, there there shouldn't be judicial decisions made in the federal system other than by judges. So the usual I mean, criticism oh, would be so horrible. These, these yeah. are these are all judges. judges. They're not appointed for life. They're appointed for fifteen yeah. years. Yeah. So John is going to blow up the tax court, right? And John is going to blow up the bankruptcy court. You know, John you're you're only making this sound more and more attractive. <laughs> no, I mean, so what happens is. I mean, it was interesting. There's a real consensus on this kind of thing amongst people who are more 
pragmatic, I hate to use the word, uh, they don't want to upset established practices which grew up before they received constitutional investigation. And and that is is one of the things that is extremely difficult. And American constitutionalism does that. So, John, you're clearly right. A corporation is not a citizen, so corporations cannot get into federal court under diversity until they changed the rules first in the 1820s, I think it was, and then in 1855. I mean, you know, that stuff has been around for a long time, and I don't see originalists saying, well, uh, we have to get rid of it. We better go back and amend it. And by the way, every judgment that was entered into with a corporate defendant in a diversity jurisdiction or a corporate plaintiff is null and void. I've got no problems with that. Fellas, this is... We better take the next I was going to say, this is a very illuminating exchange. I'll just point out that this is a 60-minute program at which we're at minute 18, and you have answered one question. That much, that much. I'm I'm going to move it on. Actually, to something that came up early in John's response to that last question, which is the amendment process for the Constitution. So we, we have a question... Uh, from a guy you might remember, John, because this name came up in the little Zoom session that you and I did for Ricochet, Mr. Bitcoin, <laughs> who asks to amend the Constitution, two-thirds of the House must approve, two-thirds of the Senate must approve, three-quarters of the states must approve. Why is the bar higher for the states? Well, I, look, I, uh, look, one of the things that is clear about our Constitution is that the difference between a Republican form of government and a Democratic form of government in 1789 was well established under classical political theory. And a Democratic government meant a rule by simple majority, which everybody hated. So you start looking at the Constitution, and what you see are all sorts of ways in which public participation is mediated by very complicated institutions. The Electoral College, the Senate's appointed by the state legislature, House of Representatives this way. And the amendment process was supposed to be there, and it was supposed to be difficult. And the way in which you make something difficult is you require supermajority votes. And at that particular point, the sort of the general tendency on all of these questions were that states were sort of independent entities who had set up, at least in part, the system. And so their participation was needed, and you wanted to protect them. And and this is a sort of a slightly more, less or less grudging situation than the fundamental rule which says that each state has two senators, and that's one position of the Constitution that can't be amended at all. And so they were just going this, and, you know, there's some very interesting papers about, for example, the same thing, it takes two-thirds of each house to override a veto. Um, it turns out that as the legislature gets bigger, it's harder to override vetoes. It also turns out if you made it three-fourths, they'd never be overridden, except in extraordinary cases. Uh, so what we do is we just have a system which uses all of these strange numbers uh, because what they're trying to do is to make sure that all things popular are mediated, softened, and so forth. The Constitution works on the framework of what we really have to do is to make sure that catastrophe doesn't happen by making things inefficient in the short run. And the way in which you do that is to have all sorts of supermajority hurdles, all sorts of other procedural hurdles built into the system on the ground floor. So I thought the question, I'm not sure, but I thought the question was more asking, why is it three quarters and not two thirds? Why is that higher for the states than for Congress? This is interesting. So I think um, they borrowed the three quarters from, if you look at the Constitution, it also requires the original Constitution to be adopted by nine of the the states. So they essentially had three quarters in the beginning. 
Um, it is strange that nine is not three quarters. It's nine thirteenths. Well, that's not. Remember, we don't count Rhode Island as a real state. That, no, that's why they did this rule because they were counting Rhode Island. <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's not. It would have been three quarters, but then they made it nine because they knew Rhode Island would screw something up. How, which they how did. is how is Delaware not the butt of that joke? <laughs> no, because Rhode Island actually Rhode Island doesn't ratify up. the Constitution because they're an ungoverned. That's right. They're like a crazy plantation, and they don't govern yeah, themselves properly. They, they, they're just they a refuge for robbers and criminals. For well, until now, I suppose. To this very day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Luther against Borden involved yes. the instability in the state yeah. of Rhode you Island. You actually right? had a real rebellion against the state government in Rhode Island. I think that's the only time it's happened other than the Civil War. Um, it, <laughs> but I think it, the, actually it, the interesting but, but, question is not – I mean, it's sort of interesting, the three quarters, but the real alternative, if you look at the text, is between this process with the three quarters and then the one we've never used, which is uh, what if enough – uh, house, num- I'm sorry, enough states call for a convention. Uh, that's really, I think, was the alternative. Although there, there is a movement to use that, and there has been for about the past decade. Oh, yeah. God help us. And there's actually a guy, uh, Mike Paulson, who's a very smart fellow at uh, at St. Thomas uh, Law School, who claims that you, we actually have had enough states. Because if you look at all the states have asked for a convention over all the years, and they haven't retracted their requests, that there actually are enough states now to call for a convention. No, I'm going to make the following remark. American constitutional law on this question has to follow the basic rule that ordinary contract law follows, which is an offer which is given is only open for a reasonable time after which it is shut down. And it's exactly the same thing. This is the same issue with the supposed to the ERA, right, is that these things are there perpetually. And then some people say they're also irrevocable. Um, I think what happens is if you really are worrying about these things as serious rules, you have to have it at the same time by a group of individuals who know exactly what it is. And I can't think of a more dangerous precedent than having a national convention uh, put together of a bunch of people who are going to basically undo every sensible provision of our Constitution and turn us into Argentina. So, you know, this is, but this, this is a thing people often uh, miss about the national convention is that yeah, you could you can have the convention. You still have to approve the results of the convention by the same three quarters of the state legislatures. So you don't have a convention and then automatically it goes into effect. So the fun thing would be let's have a convention. Let's have all the law professors in the country go spend all summer in Philadelphia writing a new constitution and just say, yeah, forget about it. We didn't really mean it. No, what they did, by the way, with the original Constitution is they did not have the legislatures because they would have blocked it. What they did is they had yeah, right to the special, people. Yeah. Right. Well, whatever that phrase means, it turns out they did have a series of independent conventions, and this was by design. Uh, They had to cut the state legislatures out because they were going to be limited. If they had only known then what the limitations would be later on, I don't think the Constitution actually, I think, would have been passed, but it would have basically invalidated itself in uh, July of 1937. So you have a 150-year Constitution, and then they require you to start over. Uh, We're being facetious, but I think the the real problem is when you're trying to talk about getting aggregate preferences, they have to be simultaneous. I have a question for you guys that comes from Hank Rohde. You can check me on this because I'm not sure if my initial reaction to this question is the correct one. Hank's question was, will we ever see a non-lawyer on the Supreme Court 
again. Now, I know we've had justices who did not. We got nine of them. But I don't understand. What do you mean again? This is my question. I know we have had justices who did not go to law school, but we have. They were lawyers. Right. And and 19th century legal education is a whole whole different thing than it is now. But we've never had a justice who wasn't a lawyer, correct? Right. Yeah. Even though it's not a constitutional requirement. No, it's Correct. not a requirement to be a lower court judge either. So let, it's not uh, let, a requirement to be a citizen. I was, yeah. So let me <laughs> that's interesting. So let, so let me tweak this just a little Fairly bit. Fairly needed then. to practice law nowadays. <laughs> so we've got check me on this one if I'm right. Every justice on the court right now, with the exception of Kagan, was an appellate judge, right? Uh, I think that's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. There, even the first day. there was um, talk, I think from President Obama, there was talk during the Obama administration about the virtues of putting a politician on the court. Because, In fact, it was Obama because Obama would cite Earl Warren. I mean, do you think we'll ever go back in that direction? I think we should. Really? Make that case, I Richard. Should. Well, I mean, what happens is appellate judges have a kind of very narrow view of how things are going, working with precedents and so forth. Uh, They've generally not, for the most part, had real experience in dealing with political institutions or private businesses. And I think what it does is that you get everybody from the same habit. They have common mode failures. They're all going to have the same kinds of weaknesses. Um, You know, we had Hugo Blacko on the United States Supreme Court. Um, We had Robert Jackson, who uh, came up there out of the SG's office and so forth. We had Bill Douglas, who comes out of the SEC. We have Felix Frankfurt, who, God forbid, was a professor. Um, I think, in effect, what happened is the reason this has taken place is that there is this huge distrust factor, which influences everything. And so if you've got an appellate judge who's got an appellate record, uh, what you can do is try to narrow them down one way or another. But I do think it creates a, a kind of professional, um, shall we say, a norm, which I'm not in favor of. One of the things that's common about judges is they write lawyer-like opinions. One of the things that's common about people who are not judges is they actually write essays. And in many cases, it seems to me that the, the that kind of style is very welcome on a Supreme Court, uh, where precedent is, in many cases, less important than it is for a lower court. And so I would like to see a, a greater range of people who were taken there. I mean, so let's hope that it happens. I don't think it's very likely, because when you put together these lists, you know, they're very strong lists of individuals, but I don't think there was anybody who wasn't the judge, indeed an appellate judge, on the Trump list. Is that right, John? You would know this better than I. I think there was one person, maybe two out of the 20, who were not lower court judges. But I don't, I think this is a difference between uh, Republicans and Democrats in appointment strategies. So it's no surprise. I think most of those examples Richard uh, listed were Democrat appointments because they see the law as an engine of social change. They don't want to be constrained by the text. Well, for the New Deal, they put him on because he would approve all the New Deal statutes, which are anathema to the Epstein view of the world last time. Well, I I mean, he did make many mistakes, but (laughs) God knows that. Um, In the end, he he became a curmudgeon, right? He became became the conservative on the court. Uh, Kind of, I guess, yeah. And it's impossible With to no classify Jackson, right? I mean, he was every which way. Well, they were all, but oh. they were all, they all blessed the New Deal, right? That's what well, they were, were put on I the mean, court for. 
But my, uh, so but, my, but my boys, like if you're if you if you want to have the courts be an engine for social change, if you want the law to be move in a certain progressive direction, then yeah, put on politicians because they're the ones who are going to be uh, least attentive or swayed by things like precedent and stare decisis and legal arguments. They uh, very much like Earl Warren. They want to use the court to settle national questions and increase the power of the court. So I think we're Republicans who are conservatives now, they tend to want to have a court that minimizes the possibilities of that. So the way you do that is you point people to the court who are going to be, I don't mean to say narrow-minded in the sense of narrow-minded, but they're going to be narrow in vision of what the law should do. And they're going to stick to, you know, uh, very legalistic, narrow arguments. Uh, couldn't the compromise here be that you appoint politicians to the court, you just appoint bad ones? For whom, <laughs> for whom, my example, I'm like halfway serious about this, for whom my example is William Howard Taft, who actually did want to be a judge. I mean, he had been a judge before, but did want to be a Supreme Court justice all along, which is part of the reason he didn't do that well as a president. Oh, no, he didn't do that well as a president because of the split ticket with respect to Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, speaking of people whom you didn't want to run World War II, it's pretty clear who the most overrated president in the history of the United States is. By the way, can uh, I, it, can, it, it would be Wilson. Can I, can I, can I just make a point oh, in, in, in Taft's favor there? And this is not original. This is in Jeffrey Rosen's book about Taft. The, the understanding of Taft we have is all seen through the prism of TR, right, who criticized him for not being sufficiently progressive and, and keeping up his progressive legacy. Mm -hmm. Taft actually put more acres under conservation than Roosevelt ever did and brought more antitrust actions. The difference was Taft thought Roosevelt had handled that incorrectly because he never went to Congress. Taft was actually trying to do it in a constitutional fashion, so yeah. it, God forbid. it took him longer. <laughs> And by the way, he was a very powerful Supreme Court justice, yeah, and he very was a influential very, justice, and a very powerful um, judge when he was on the Sixth Circuit. I mean, the man had sort of genuine abilities, uh, and you know, being a former president it gives you some political experience. I don't think we could expect that today. I mean, just to have the thought: well, we're not going to do Jimmy Carter, but uh, would one want Obama, Barack Obama, to sit on the? Well, United the idea States. was Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton were the oh, people God. we talked I mean, about. Hold your tongue, John. That's that's what people have been floating for years. Well, that's uh, floated by because they're both in their 70s. Let me give you guys a question. It's a little bit more on current events. Have, have either of you followed the issues that are going on with the, the Office of Civil Rights in Seattle? This is a, no. a question that came from a listener. So this is what they're doing. I'll read you a little bit from the piece that he sent along with this question where it says, The Seattle Office of Civil Rights manages training sessions on racial bias which on at least one occasion have been voluntary for city employees. The classes are part of the city's race and social justice initiative, which was established 10 years ago. But the training sessions last month have drawn scrutiny because participants have been forced to separate into groups based on their race. Race. So the question that Kevin Smith sends is, are race-specific training sessions like what the city of Seattle has done legal? What are my options if my employer, and presumably he means a public sector employer like this, launches white-only training sessions like the city of Seattle or tries to force me to sign on to Black Lives Matter talking points to keep my job. 
Well, I think that's the last one is clearly flatly unconstitutional. I mean, uh, this is McCarthyism of the modern variety. Uh, signing on to Black Lives Matter is no better than what they did to George Anastopoulos when they wanted to take him to sell vows that he had never been a congressman and so forth. So I don't think that these things are related to the efficiency of the office. I think that they clearly have content that's very specific in one party, flatly unconstitutional. I have to say, um, I think that these training sessions run the danger of becoming seriously amok. Uh, the question I would ask is on all of these issues of implicit bias, the two, one, is there going to be anybody who's a Republican or a white person who's going to be allowed to teach in those programs, or there's not going to be that case? And is it the question that we now know by definition that the only people who suffer from implicit bias are those people who have uh, the adornments of white privilege? Uh, I can't do this. I think the whole race thing in the United States with the white supremacy tropes that have come forward here have absolutely gone over the edge, completely unconstitutional, and really in many ways extremely dangerous because what you do with these things is you entrench your own kind inside government by taking government power, which is given to you to govern all people, and using it to turn everything in one particular direction. I regard this as very worrisome, and I would certainly hope that somebody would sue to enjoin it, and any employee's certainly would have standing on that question. Yeah, I agree, Richard. They're both easily unconstitutional. Yeah, the First Amendment, when signing the letters, you know, coerced to sign a letter is unconstitutional. And then the 14th Amendment means your government's not allowed to classify people by race. So if it subjects some people by race to certain (laughs) job training requirements that it doesn't require of other people based only on race, it's easily unconstitutional. Even Richard and I could win this lawsuit against Seattle. <laughs> Inept as we are. But what's happened, of course, is that the um, asymmetry, which was first introduced into the Civil Rights Acts in their interpretation under Title VII in a modest way, have now become absolutely categorical and all-consuming. So as far back as 1973 or so, in a case called McDonnell Douglas against Green, it turns out that in disparate, in disparate treatment cases, um, there's a protected class which gets the benefit and the other class isn't protected. So right away, it turned out that this was no longer a colorblind statute. If it turns out you give a presumption in favor of disparate treatment to a black person that you deny to a white person. And you can understand why they wanted to do that. They thought most of the the discrimination was running in one direction. And this was a a kind of evidentiary corrective. But now this has been taken so much further uh, that I think somebody really has to stop it. And my guess is uh, in the current Supreme Court, if you actually could get there on this thing, I think that you would get more than five justices to strike this Um, because I think it has become completely over the top, as so much of race relationships in the United States has come in the last year or so. Well, while we're on hot-button issues that have to do with race, one of our listeners gave us the opportunity to take on the mother of all of them. Uh, This is from a listener by the name of Arthur Beer, who asks... A question in two sentences, the second sentence of which is, is, is helpful to sort of buy you insurance for the answer to the first, which w- is, was Dred Scott properly decided? And of course, what does properly decided mean? Which one of you wants to touch that one first? Oh, I'll touch it. I mean, interestingly, it starts off with Roman law. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. (laughs) Well, let me explain to you, and then it gets wrong. Uh, One of the things is if the first question you have to ask is manumission of a slave guarantees somebody's citizenship. And under the Roman system, all it did was it makes the person a free person, but it doesn't make him a member of the polity. 
Oh, and, and to that extent, Red Scott has something going for it. But where it got completely mangled is it assumed that somehow or other the legislature of a state could not change that condition by whatever it did because of the massive racial inferiority. And, and that is absolutely crazy beyond all sorts of beliefs. So, no, Red Scott is not correctly decided uh, because what it does is it doesn't import the correct notions of citizenship into the diversity clause. And those you have to get by looking back at much earlier sources. So as, as ever is the case with this stuff, uh, history speaks very loud and clear in the Constitution. And the stuff on the territories, where on earth do you get the power to invalidate the um, uh, Missouri Compromise by allowing somebody to make needful regulations in the territory? And, and he just misreads that clause in just a horrible way. Uh, so the decision deserves all the scorn that has ever been heaped upon it, because even as a technical matter, there's nothing for it. The dissents in that case, I think, are much, much stronger. I agree with Richard on in terms of the misinterpretation of the Constitution on diversity and on uh, the power of Congress to regulate slavery in the territories. And let me just add on to it a bigger point, which is one we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is what's the proper role of the Supreme Court? Uh, Chief Justice Taney thought that he would use the power of judicial review to to stop or to settle, I guess, to settle a giant national controversy. And uh, he's, and so that's, I think, why, plus because he himself was, uh, you know, a defender of slavery, but I think he thought he was doing the country good by trying to end slavery as a, you know, as an important national question. And of course, he failed at that. If anything, he made it worse. Uh, and I think that shows the perils of these judges trying to act in a political way where they think they can use their judicial powers to produce some kind of result that's outside the law. Uh, and and I, so I think it's a great example, unfortunately. Not great and some good, but just a, a huge example of judicial activism at its worst. I mean, I mean, activism, look, John and I disagree about the meaning of the term activism. Uh, if you just simply use ordinary textual devices for interpretation, the case is egregiously wrong. Yes. And, and so you don't have to do anything fancy. You just have to know your stuff. I mean, I have this constant beef about uh, modern constitutional lawyers, uh, which applies fully to John, uh, which is virtually every <laughs> one of them is a public lawyer who does con law and administrative law. There's nobody for the most part who does constitutional law who starts as a property lawyer, as a contracts lawyer, or something like that, who does equity. We, we would never let those people into the club. Come on, what are you talking well, about? I, I know that, but I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm not a member of the club. <laughs> I, I came to constitutional law in the other direction. I mean, I look at the Constitution as it shall have judicial power of all cases in law and equity. Hey, you know, it really helps to know what equitable jurisdiction was in 1789 in order to read that and to why really, they had no. to put that in. Oh, absolutely, John. That's a long discussion. Um, but it completely upends the standard rules on Article 3 standing, if you understand it correctly. Um, but that's a different discussion. I'll give you guys yet another discussion. This one, I'll let you start with this one, John. This is an obscure statute that we've spent a lot of time talking about the past few years. James Salerno writes in with the question, is the Logan Act constitutional? God, no. uh, yeah, Why don't you I, start, even though we've heard so much, of it, yeah, just what start is by it? reminding yes. us what the Logan Act is. So the Logan Act, uh, I don't have the text right in front of me, but it essentially prohibits uh, people who are not members of the United States government from conducting or interfering with foreign policy. And 
part of the problem is that it doesn't really define what that means. So I could see, I could see a federal crime uh, that says someone couldn't impersonate an ambassador or say they were representing the government's position. But it does run into the First Amendment, the free speech clause, if it extends to people giving speeches attacking U.S. foreign policy or people even going to other countries and saying, what can I do to help? Or So it's, it's, at one level, it's sort of unconstitutionally vague in what it prohibits. But then the other problem is that um, if it does reach into things about speech and expressing your viewpoint, then I think it's definitely unconstitutional because one of the key points of the free speech clause is to allow us to speak so that we can govern ourselves. And so you would have, you would want the ability to dispute uh, the the political positions of the government and foreign affairs just as much as uh, domestic affairs. And the Logan Act could have the effect of intruding on your right to do that. Oh, the Logan Act is an incredible message. Remember, this is the statute which got Michael Flynn into serious trouble right. in the waning days of the Obama administration. And it, it is an absolute absurdity to argue that an incoming minister of the United States is not allowed to make contact with his opposite numbers from hostile or friendly nations prior to assumption of office. And at that particular way, it is surely crazy and unconstitutional. There is, however, a very interesting question, um, which is... The Wogan Act is too broad, but here's the following thing. It is very clear that the president has exclusive power to conduct foreign relations, maybe subject to some congressional limitations, which I believe is the case, uh, so that there, no other private individual should be able to go abroad and to purport to address the administration in an effort to try to deal with it, because that would create inconsistencies and embarrassment. Uh, and to that extent, uh, the strength of the Logan Act has nothing to do with free speech as such. It has to do with the respect for the uh, sole executive power to negotiate these things, and it's a separation of powers issue. Let me let me give you guys um, an interesting question, a, a more theoretical question. This comes from a listener who writes in under the handle of Lois Lane. I don't, I don't think that's fair. Does that mean Richard is is Richard Jimmy the Cub photographer, and I get to be Clark Kent? I'll leave it to you guys to decide that. This here's the question: I do not think that either you or Epstein would be hired to their respective institutions in 2020. And then she adds, especially not you. <laughs> I can just imagine the hiring committee discussing his last book, much less his service in the Bush administration. So here's here's the actual question that that sentiment proceeds. Wait, that wasn't a question. That was just a statement. Of yes, fact. this is, ah, this is okay. one of those questions from the floor. It takes a minute. Since branded diplomas, her term, are almost required now to enter into what I see to be a sort of 21st century American oligarchy. Do you think that there will ever be a law that requires institutions to have more ideological diversity in faculty? Would that even be appropriate? What other fixes might exist for the stranglehold of progressive thought in higher education, she writes, which honestly makes me want to get out of pitchfork, even though I don't consider myself a populist. John, I'll, we'll let the wow. man in Berkeley lead off on we'll this. We'll let the man, wow. the Trump man. Wow, wow. interesting. Go ahead, Well, guy. of course, you know, some some might – look, most of the higher education seats in the country, I believe, are um, paid for and created by state governments. And so there might already be – a requirement of ideological neutrality uh, in the sense that all of these faculties and universities are state actors. 
um, but it's hard to prove. Uh, some people have tried to bring lawsuits that were just difficult to show um, ideological discrimination. Uh, even though, if you look at the you know numbers in total, I think there's clearly ideological discrimination going on in university hiring. Uh, when you have a case where I think the last figures show, if you just look at political donations, there's something like a 90 to 10 difference. In, 99 to 1 so is no, closer in some cases. <laughs> and I last saw a study by a co-author of mine named James Phillips, who has done some research trying to identify whether there's ideological discrimination on faculties, law faculties, and so on. And not surprisingly, he finds that there's quite a bit of it. And I think that's verified by other studies uh, in other disciplines. So I think the interesting question is, uh, one, do state legislatures want to make it easier to sue universities and faculties so that, like, for right, ideological discrimination? Uh, there's also a new executive order that the Trump administration has issued, uh, which requires uh, allows the federal government to cut off education funds, which would bankrupt most major research universities if there are free speech violations. Uh, and then a third thing, and this would go to the private universities too, is whether uh, the federal government or the states should consider making all employers, not just universities, but all employers subject to an addition to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which just would say, uh, you know, you can't discriminate, as we know, based on race and sex and religion, national origin, why don't we also include and creed? Look, I, I have a reaction to this. Um, you just look at the Berkeley system now. Uh, the race stuff is built in so deeply that unless you pass a race test or a sex test which says we don't believe in the colorblind or the sexblind rules, you're not to be considered for further employment. And, and I, that has to be for public institutions a per se constitutional violation. The difficulty, of course, that you get is that if some people believe in affirmative action and then you say, well, they've got to build in some kind of asymmetry, is this just a question of degree over the previous system? I think it's much worse than that because it's completely centralized um, and it's not done by individual faculty preferences and so forth, and that somebody should be able to bring a suit. The difficulty is to bring a suit like that, you have to subject unendurable um, abuse from various people on the other side uh, who are going to say that you're the very kind of racist that we're trying to exclude from the particular system. Uh, I think the only cure for this, if there's a cure at all, is for people to have to speak up and to attack the system and hope that if we're tenured as John and I are, that this will withstand uh, the situation. But I think the problem has become quite intolerable. I think that the level of confidence and selectivity that is exhibited by so many people who resort to a kind of shaming of those individuals who disagree with them and say, essentially, unless you agree with what I believe as being bedrock truths of the system, you're not allowed to participate in the discussion at all. Um, American legal education, American general social education is, I think, at a genuine crisis point, um, and I think it's important to speak out against it. So let me give you guys this question. This is from a guy who's been with us from the very start, Scott R., a longtime Ricochet member. 
who writes, is there enough integrity in the legal community today for a distinction between legal theory and political theory to survive long term? Which justices left or right maintain that distinction most consistently? That is, they subordinate their political wishes to the law as they understand it. And he adds the coda, we on the right like to think our guys generally behave less cynically in this department. Are we correct? Richard, I'll let you have the first stab at this. Oh, well, first of all, I think that there has to be a very strong distinction drawn between political predilections on the one hand and political theory on the other. Uh, I regard political predilections as being a kind of result-oriented situation. You say, you know, I want to uphold this particular statute. Give me a theory that will get you there. But I do not know how you do legal theory um, unless you understand something about political theory, particularly when you're at the Supreme Court level. Um, There are going to be many many questions that are going to rise that are matters of first principle, and you have to be able to do that. So, for example, when I wrote about the takings clause, uh, what you do is you say, now, how did this thing get to be formed in this particular direction? Uh, because the traditional political formulations of the issues, it talked about consent, and in order to understand why that fails, you have to go through all the variations of consent that don't work, and then when they put the just compensation provision into place, you have to figure out why it is that that's there, and it overcomes these problems. So unless you know about the sort of the dual problems of holdout questions on the one side and about externalities and and domination on the other side, you're never going to get these things right. And if you recall earlier on, we talked about Rhode Island and when Madison was trying to figure out why it is he had the 9 out of 13 rule, it was to subvent the holdout question and he says, why is it that Rhode Island with 1 60th of the population um, would be able to do this? And to give you but another illustration of somebody's going to ask you why it is that the electoral college went from a deliberative body to a rubber stamp to pledge delegates, unless you understand the uh, basic fundamental political difficulties in having uh, representatives have deliberative powers in a body like this, uh, you'll never be able to get it. The College of Cardinals, all the cardinals represented only themselves. They didn't have an agency question. If you send people as a delegate and ask them to deliberate over these particular things, they don't have sufficient instructions to tell them what they're going to do. And you really have to know something about agency course theory in order to answer the explanation of why did the practice evolve in the way in which it did and why does it make sense. And one of the things about the recent Supreme Court decision is it came out the right way, but they spend much too much time working on textualism, which really doesn't quite cover the case, and not enough on custom and practice, which requires some of that kind of understanding. So um, I agree with you that you really have to be able to do all of this stuff, but I think it's a terrible mistake to assume that somebody who's steeped in the political theory of the founding period or even of the laissez-faire or even of socialism uh, and some of its sense is thereby debarred from doing the kind of work that has to be done. So um, you have to know all the stuff about takings, all the stuff about separation of powers. You have to have some understanding of public choice in order to understand why these provisions are put into place. And once you understand what the reasons for putting them there are, you're likely to give a better interpretation of how they apply in a particular dispute. John, I I think the direction that Scott was going with the question is kind of the the famous sort of originalist or textualist pledge that I will follow the law where it leads, even if it's totally the opposite of what my political views are. What's your view on how the long-term prospects for that 
position looks, which is, I think, what he's getting at here. Yeah. You know, Justice Scalia had this uh, famous quote where he said, if your uh, legal results always accord with your political views and you're not doing something right. I agree with that. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. correct. But, <laughs> um, and so it might be the case that uh, liberals and conservatives view the law differently here, because I think the question's right. I wouldn't call it political theory versus legal theory. Um, I would just say uh, the way you practice law or the way you interpret texts, the difference between that and just what you think is morally the right thing to do. And I think conservatives do see a difference there. They, I think Richard just explained in part why that uh, conservatives just you know, think that the law is independent and separate from politics in many ways, and that's not just a tool to reach your political outcomes. I don't think liberals necessarily believe that. So, you know, when I first heard the question, I didn't really understand it because in most law schools, people who teach legal theory, as it's called, basically spend most of their time trying to make sure that the law does fit all of their political outcomes. Like, in my mind, legal theory is just uh, legal philosophers who are trying to use the law to reach to put into effect their preferred philosophical views of the world. And so I do think that now the question is what to do about it, because I think it's a kind of unilateral disarmament on the part of conservatives. If conservatives uh, are constantly right, saying, well, we're not going to use the law to reach political outcomes that we happen to like, uh, we're going to restrain ourselves, and sometimes we're going to reach liberal outcomes too, because that's what the law properly interpreted means – and then you have liberal judges and lawyers who are just going to say, no, we're just going to, you know, you, you know, reach progressive outcomes every time. Then conservatives on the long, in the long run will always lose. And you might say maybe that's what's been happening since the new, ever since 1933 or 1934. Well, there have uh, been ebbs and, ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, let me give but you maybe, what I think. Well, just maybe what needs to happen is for liberals to experience what conservative judicial activism would really be like, where conservatives say, oh, we're going to throw text and precedent to the winds and legal and constitutional history. We're just going to use the law the way you use the law. And maybe after that, you'll have a little mutually assured destruction and uh, deterrence, and then it will all stop. That's my optimistic well, hope. Th- my view is that you don't imitate. Two wrongs don't make a right. But, uh, Troy, the, the kind of famous cases that illustrate this are, uh, what do you do with the Fugitive Slave Act? And, you know, this was a serious problem about how its enforcement took place. And there were several judges who says, I understand what it requires me to do, and I refuse to do it, so I'm going to resign. Uh, what they did not say is, I understand what it requires. I'm going to create an exception about it for anybody who comes up north on the Underground Railroad, so the statute becomes a nullity or the Constitution becomes a nullity. And there's also, if you remember, Herman Melville's Billy Budd. It's a terrific story about Captain Veer, who has to decide whether or not he's going to execute this blameless fellow um, who had been abused by this man, Claggett. And all of the staff is arguing for mercy, and it turns out what he does is he tells them, I agree with you on every one of these principles. The problem is the law is so powerful and so clear on this, you cannot let him through. And they said, but you know, he did not hurt him. And the answer comes back, that is not part of the offense. All you have to do is to lash out out against him. And so Veer, and his name is not an accent. He's the man who's telling the truth. Verity, I think, is what's going on. He commits the uh, the duty because of his duty. I think that that sense of law, it's a powerful one. And, it's, of course, it's deeply 
troublesome. Do you do what Captain Veer did or do you not? I think the answer is if you're within the system, you do it or you resign um, is what is going on. And, you know, if you're a judge in Nazi Germany, resignation is going to be appropriate under these kinds of circumstances. So um, uh, when you have bad laws, we love disobedience. When you have good laws, we hate it. Then when you don't know what the law is, we don't know what to do. That is kind of one of the eternal moral dilemmas that everybody faces. But I think internal to the legal system, you have to do what Captain Veer did. You have to do what happened with the Fugitive Slave Act. Even Lincoln, by the way, was slavery and with Dred Scott. Now, he was very careful uh, to say that I have to respect the integrity of the judgment in the particular case. I just don't treat it as a binding precedent that deals with cases uh, that have yet to come before the court because I don't believe in judicial supremacy. If you remember, I think I have that right, don't I, John? That was his position. Yes, he said, I will enforce Dred Scott in the case itself, but I do not have to follow it as a precedent in any other case unless the court makes me case by case. I will turn to a question here, which I am going to begin with our resident Californian on. This is a topical one from a listener by the name of Rufus Jones, who asked an important question given the events of the past couple of weeks, which is, how, presuming a certain answer, how bad does Kamala Harris rate as an executive in the justice system? So for people who don't recall, <laughs> prior to being a senator, Kamala Harris was the attorney general in California. And prior to that, the DA in San Francisco. John, how did she do? <laughs> I, well, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, I haven't looked at the record myself, but I've read journalistic accounts of it. And uh, one thing she did as attorney general is that, and well, and as DA before that, was she really increased the prosecution of drug crimes, uh, which is uh, quite contradictory, it seems, with her uh, new stance on Black Lives Matter, perhaps, since those cases tend to fall more heavily, at least they did here, I believe, <clears throat> more heavily on minority and the poor communities. She also, as I, I take it, um, basically refused to investigate uh, serious misdoings in the crime labs in the state uh, to the point where there were many, many uh, convictions that had to be either overturned or there was evidence that a lot of uh, the testing had produced fabricated evidence, it seems. Um, but I think really, then she's also famous, there was a third thing she was famous for about using the law to go after the parents of kids who didn't show up in school, things like this. So I, I but the, I, what I would say is that it's not that she was a good or bad executive. I don't think she left a very strong mark on the way law enforcement was done in California. You're not going to remember her uh, in the litany of people who were important attorney generals or governors uh, out here in California. Hey, uh, what I think what it shows it rather was that she didn't really have, she doesn't have a lot of principles uh, that she uh, actually campaigned, I believe for attorney general and for DA out here in San Francisco as a uh, tough on crime, yeah. <laughs> which uh, that she actually, when she made her big break into politics, she ran for DA. She was in the DA's office and then she ran against the current DA, who I believe is a guy named Terry Hallinan, who was even farther to, to the left than a lot of these DAs all around the country right now. Um, and then, of course, as she gets higher and higher into politics, she starts to become more and more critical 
of law enforcement because that's what she needs in order to advance politically. And so I, th- I think that's really the record is not that she was important in any way with law enforcement, that just it was she was she had no principles of political, uh, no political principles, and she was just using it all as a stepping stone to get to where she is now, just uh, maybe a few heartbeats away from the presidency. There is no question that politicians change their views as they move from one part of the country to another. So if you are a representative of upstate New York, like one of the current Democratic senators is, uh, you're conservative. The moment you go to run nationwide or statewide, you become liberal. Um, I actually was involved in litigation that did involve Kamala Harris, not directly, but uh, I represented a client. And it was very clear in this particular case that she was prepared to invent enormous amounts of federal of government resources in order to sort of help a union gain a representative situation in a trial that lasted for a very very long period of time uh, it turned out we were successful in beating her back and when they actually counted all the ballots uh, the anti-union forces won by something over 80 percent of the particular vote and i mean one of the things that i worry most about biden is that he is a very hardline union guy from start to finish you cannot find any sentence where he starts about creating good jobs where you don't have the word union between good and job. And I think that she is probably going to be the same way. And the Democratic platform is very heavily pro-labor union, and I think that she is as well. And of course, what's so important about that is as an attorney general, or indeed as anybody in government, the amount of resources that you're prepared to invest in that particular cause is, I think, a, a real critical indicator. And if you look at the Democratic platform, Biden is really wants to go gung-ho on such things as the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, and they're certainly very strongly in favor of AB5, which has wrecked the California economy or may well do so with respect to independent contractors, not only for Uber and Lyft, but for all sorts of other occupations. Uh, So to me, that's the most important thing about her. I think the criminal stuff I'm less concerned about at this particular point in time. I do believe that she has some hard lighter instincts, and they certainly do not upset me the way in which some of her other political actions do. The last question that I'll give you guys is a lawyer trying to play stump the band, and it's kind of fun. So we'll end on this question from Jerry Giordano, who asks, the 22nd Amendment provides, and here he's got the text, and I'm using the emphasis as he's using it. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. Here's his question. Textually, this prohibits election of a former president who's disqualified by prior tenure, but does not explicitly prohibit a former president from subsequently serving as president. This leads to my question, could Joe Biden have picked Barack Obama as his running mate? If so, and if they won, could Obama then become president again if Biden were to die, resign, or be removed from office? Nice question. I think the answer is that uh, Obama could not serve. 
I mean, at this particular point, I don't think one wants to be so literal about this stuff. We know what the clear purpose was to prevent the repetition of the situation with Franklin D. Roosevelt. And to put somebody on the ticket in a subordinate position when he's next in line is tantamount to electing him as president in the event conditionally uh, that the current president is either dies or is unable to serve. Um, I hope it never comes to a situation because, generally speaking, the way in which a constitution works best is people don't try to get too close to the edge and skate on thin ice, at which point you get political and judicial controversies that is very, very difficult to resolve. John likes mischievous textualist readings. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the reading's fine. And I would go further in the argument and say it's not just those first two sentences. But if you keep reading in the 22nd Amendment, it says, you know, this article, you know, doesn't bar people who are holding the office of president when this amendment is approved you know, they're not covered. But then it says, and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president acting during the remainder of the term. So I would say the people who wrote the amendment knew the difference between elected to the office of the president, holding the office of the president, acting and being acting president. And they could have easily have said no person who has held the office of president or acted as so it seems to me that you have to give the choice of the word elected to the office of the president meaning which uh to me suggests that the question's correct that you could have someone who had been president twice become vice president and then that person elevates to the office of president not through their election to the office of the presidency but because they become acting president after the death of the president i think the guy's right uh, could, could you do the following thing, John, um, since we're on the other side of this again? Could Biden say to Obama, look, I want you to do this, and the deal is I'm going to get elected, I'm going to resign uh, two weeks after I'm chosen. Yeah. And then you're going to take over. And then what you do is you announce publicly that that's the scheme. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution doesn't save us from everything. It's not perfect. I think the anti-circumvention can. Where is that in the Constitution? It is. It's again. You go right back in every serious statute that you ever read. That canon has been invoked. Uh, you start with the Roman precedents. You go to the medieval precedents. There has never been a case where people have been allowed to engage in obvious subterfuges and to uh, to to gain from that. And I so, think so, in the deliberate case, I think I, I think in the deliberate case, if you run as a vice president for a person who agrees to resign within one week after getting into public office, uh, that you've elected Look, this and man the American as people president. can. Take that into account when they vote for the guy. If they really I, I think that, that they don't no, want someone I mean, to become president this no, way, no, then they no. vote against they them. Could really, they could really take it into account if they do want him as president and they're thrilled about the about the evade. See, this is what I worry about Richard's approach is that he's reading principles into the Constitution which are not in the text or the history. Well, but, we don't have any evidence that the people who wrote this amendment understood it that way. In fact, it looks like they didn't. And so you're reading these kind of principles into there which are not there. And they could have said that so easily if they had wanted to. 
No, this is no. It, it what happens is there are all sorts of cases where unanticipated consequences arise, and there is a general norm of statutory and constitutional and contractual interpretation, uh, which says if you think that behavior is an obvious evasion of a prohibition norm, you strike it down. Half of the Internal Revenue Code is organized in that particular fashion with their form and substance doctrine. I think that the history of interpretation essentially always has this particular kind of overlay. In some cases, it, it can lead to abuse. But on the other hand, if you don't have it, it can lead to abuses in the opposite direction. And the hypothetical that I gave, I'm pretty confident that I would win that one eight to one, even if John were on the Supreme Court, because I know who would be the <laughs> You got that right, Richard. <laughs> Do, do you guys, we got to run, so I'll leave it on this just because I don't think we've ever actually talked about this before on the show. Do you guys like the presidential term limits? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I do. <laughs> oh, I do. oh, there we go. Um, I, I'm in favor of term limits for everybody. <laughs> actually, oddly enough, um, I think that it's more important with certain local figures. There's no way as a citizen mm. of whatever state I am that I can vote against somebody who's a senator from another state who wields inordinate power. And so the term limits is basically a way to solve the prisoner's dilemma game to prevent disproportionate impact. You don't have that problem with the president of the United States in quite the same way. But in general, I think that uh, when you start piling terms on, one after another, the authoritarian risk starts to become really great. And those people may form a majority in support of the authoritarian type uh, so that the electoral politics are imperfect. And that goes back to the original constitutional design. We have this whole maze of provisions, some of which authorize things, some of which prohibit things. And I think that in a Republican form of government, uh, the long-term aggregation of power is something that you have to worry about. And a sensibly construed uh, prohibition against multiple terms for a president works not only to keep somebody like Mr. Vladimir Putin out of office um, or Mr. Xi, whatever his name is in China, out of office. It should also to do some nameless person in the United States who might aspire to a third term. John, give me your critical take and then we'll close up. Well, shop. I think I uh, don't need to extensively discuss it. I just refer people to the Federalist Papers where Alexander Hamilton says that the main restraint on the presidency is election. And even if a president decides in their second term not to run again, they're always worried about public opinion. And I think we've undermined that design. Once we say you can't run for a third term, then presidents, they start swinging for the fences. They start caring about things like their legacy because they know they're never going to face the voters again. And it might be one of the reasons why second terms of presidents have always have often turned out worse than the first terms because they don't have the incentive re-election to constrain their actions. All right, gentlemen, that is the show. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. Apologies to those we didn't get to. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all of our great listeners. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. We survive. Our deep differences, John. <laughs> uh, we should, uh, uh, you're, you're just as bad as those liberals. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Thank you.